be here again. Give the, uh, give the opportunity to share with you something from Deuteronomy 8. I might just pray as well as uh, we open up this passage. And Father, we just pray that you might, through this passage, provide for us a challenge and an encouragement. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your uh, Bible open, that will be helpful so you can follow through. And we'll begin, begin just at the beginning, of course. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So here we have the, the introductory passage or introductory verse that encompasses the purpose of what follows and it serves, of course, as an introduction to the passage ahead of us. It's an instruction given by a covenant-keeping God. But notice who it's to. It says, I command you today. And I know you is not a very big word, but it's probably important for us to ask who the you is. It's the you that is about to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. It's not the you that was condemned to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness initially. The ones whom God had punished for being fearful the ones whom God had punished for not being willing to follow him and obey him and trust him after the spies had come back and reported something that they were afraid of. They failed to trust God. And during that 40 years of, of punishment in the wilderness, that generation had died out. And we now have a new generation, yet that generation, the generation about to cross into the promised land, also spent much of that 40 years in the wilderness they too had to endure the punishment meant for another generation. As part of what I want to sort of explore today is what's going on there. We have, in a sense, although no one's truly innocent, a group of people who had not deserved that punishment actually going through this wilderness experience because of what others had done. So they spent 40 years wandering about, enduring the hardship of the wilderness, in readiness to enter the Promised Land. So what was God doing in that How was God going about redeeming the time that they had spent in the wilderness for another purpose? Think that through, and that's what we're going to think through today. So we find here that Moses then is addressing those people, those people who had endured the wilderness experience because of the sin of their parents. In a very real sense, they shared the punishment they didn't deserve. Yet God says to them through Moses in verse 16 that this undeserved experience was to do you good in the end. I want to show you a a clip. I'll just give you a quick intro to it first. Um, How many people have seen the film Amistad? Some of the older folks probably have. Me? Excellent. Um, It's a very fine film. The opening's a bit um, graphic. And violent, so you might be a little concerned about that. Don't show it to your children. But it's basically the story of uh, a group of uh, sl- uh, slaves who had been um, had taken over a slave ship, and they had killed the crew and tried to uh, seek freedom. And they were, in a sense, recaptured, brought into uh, into America, and there they went on trial for murder. But they tried to prove that they, in fact, were innocent because they were free men who had been forcibly enslaved. So the scene we're about to see is the final court case. We have John Quincy Adams, former president of the US, 
And just before the scene occurs that we're about to look at, he sort of wandered through the court case, or through the courtroom, and he looked at a variety of statues. There were statues of former presidents and greats of America. And he said, you know, here's Benjamin Franklin, and here's my own dad, John Adams, you know, a president. And he, uh, and he sort of reminds people of the impact those people, their past has had on their present and will have on their future. So let's have a look at the clip. We have long resisted asking you for guidance. Perhaps we have feared in doing so. You might acknowledge that our individuality, which we so, so revere, is not entirely our own. Perhaps we have feared and an appeal to you might be taken for weakness. But we have come to understand, finally, that this is not so. We understand now. We've been made to understand and to embrace the understanding that who we are is who we were. We desperately need your strength and wisdom to triumph over our fears, our prejudices, ourselves. Give us the courage to do what is right. Now there you've got the punchline. He says, who we are is who we were. Who we are is who we were. In a very real sense, our past shapes us. Who we are, how we act, the attitudes we possess, the way we relate to others, all those kinds of things are informed to some degree, whether for good or for ill, by our past, by our parenting, the neighbourhoods in which we were brought up, the schooling we were able to enjoy or not, the friendships we had, our experiences generally. All of that contributes to making us who we are. Who we are is who we were. And much of the passage we're looking at today in some ways is grounded in that notion, the idea that a past informs a present and will set a platform for a future. And that's what we're going to be trying to, looking at, trying to look at this morning. If you go to verses uh, 2 through to 6, where we're going to try to explore this idea a little further and embellish upon it. From verse 2, it just says, And you shall remember the whole way, that, that whole way, that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you, uh, let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out on you. Your foot didn't swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. So here we have something of the experience of those who are now about to enter the promised land. Something of the experience that they were required to remember. 
They were to remember the whole way the Lord had led them. And note the twin purposes here of this wilderness experience. It was to humble you and to test you to know what is in your heart. So although the time spent in the wilderness was not of their causing, it was used by God for their benefit. It was an experience designed to humble those who went through it. And it humbles in the sense that it was to show one's absolute dependence upon God in all things. They wouldn't possibly have survived in the desert if it wasn't for God's provision. He let them hunger, but then he gave them manna, food from heaven. Why so? So they might realise by personal experience that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. They need to get their perspective right. It's God's provision first, and he'll provide their need because he knows them and cares for them. You might remember, of course, that Jesus himself demonstrated this very principle during his 40 days in the wilderness. The devil tempted him to make bread from stones, and Jesus rebuked the devil by quoting this exact verse. And though he was hungry, remember he hadn't eaten for 40 days, he had absolute confidence that God would provide. And of course he did. In Matthew 4.11 it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So for the Israelites, the experience was even greater still. For God worked in ways that they were really quite oblivious to. It was just kind of their ordinary experience for them back at that time. Their clothing didn't wear out. How weird is that? Their feet didn't swell. In the Hebrew there, it's sort of actually a notion of kind of calloused, become calloused and hard, swell up through the extra layers of skin from uh, walking around a lot. But they actually remained in good health. God provided them for ways to... Uh, you know, that they were oblivious to as they experienced it. It was God's provision that allowed them to survive in the desert. Consequently, any claim to self-sufficiency is shown to be completely unwarranted by that very experience. And this is the lesson that God's teaching them in the desert. It was a lesson that they needed to grasp wholeheartedly and completely, something they should not, could not forget when they moved into the promised land with its plenty and its ease. Verse 5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing them. See, the wilderness was God's fatherly training exercise, his fatherly discipline. It was to teach his people to be distinctively his people and not some other people. This was God's testing. He's sort of saying to them, would you trust me in the midst of privations and uncertainties? Would you live and act as my people in the context of hardship? This is about God's people's heart relationship with their God. Is a relationship with him the most important relationship in their lives? So the desert experience showed that it should be. If all this then was proven true in the context of hardship, then he says, you, my people, are ready to continue to live in the same way in the context of plenty. Even in the context of plenty, you can trust me. You should be grateful to me. You should be set apart as a people holy for me. You are to be my people in my place under my rule. 
Hebrews 12 reminds Christians of, of effectively the same principle. In verse 5 it says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For they disciplined us for a short time as fathers, as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields, what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This was the purpose of of the training God gave his chosen people in the wilderness. It was to teach them that they were utterly dependent on God for everything. They were to realise in their hearts that they could make no claim to self-sufficiency. They would discover that God treated his people as a father treats his children and that he expects that they'll live as his people and not like other people. These were lessons they needed to learn before before they entered the promised land so that they would recognise that the abundance of this new land that this new land offered was provided by God for their enjoyment because he chose to lavish his blessings upon his people. They need to remember that they didn't deserve it. It wasn't won by their efforts. They need to remember God's training in the wilderness so they would not forget God in the land of ease and abundance. See, their past informed and shaped who they were now and laid the foundation for who they would, hopefully, continue to be in the future in a new environment. God had prepared his people for the test that was to come, the test that comes with ease and riches. And this test is clearly stated in the next few verses. So read from verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of fountains and springs, flowing out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, of olive trees and honey, a land uh, in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. What an incredible place to be, a land where everything is provided. But then he goes on. We'll skip a few verses, go to verse 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. See how easy it is to forget God in the good times. How easy it is to forget that good stuff is actually a gift from God for which he rightly expects our gratitude. How little effort it takes to convince ourselves that our well-doing is a result of our own ability or hard work, that we somehow deserve it or have earned it. The riches of this world, whether they be material prosperity or good health or status or popularity, whatever it might be, make us actually feel happy and content in this life. And if this is the case, if if we somehow don't have that kind of nagging sense of unease within us, that inkling that that something's not quite right, 
that intuitive, this can't be all there is attitude. If, if we don't have that kind of thing, that's really just a small step to move to the place where we feel no need of God, where we feel independent of God because we feel happy and content in this life as it is. Jesus himself made the foolish, foolishness of this attitude abundantly clear. Remember the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 9, uh, sorry, Matthew 19. When Jesus told him to sell all that he had and give it to the poor, he went away sad. Why? Because he had a lot of stuff. His contentment and his security was grounded in his wealth. Jesus knew this. And that's why he told him to be rid of it. For it was, for the rich young ruler, a substitute for God. He needed to learn that lasting treasure was a treasure stored in heaven, a treasure which only God could provide. It was God's heavenly promised land for which one should aim. Or remember the rich farmer in Luke 12 who stored up his grain in numerous silos, planning to live comfortably off the profits for the remainder of his life. But it wasn't so, for he died that very night, according to the story. He failed to realise that nothing this world has to offer is permanent. Jesus called him a fool because the love, uh, sorry, the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. I think C.S. Lewis makes a, a, an insightful observation about this kind of thing in the Screwtape Letters, where he says, or he writes, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while it really is finding its place in him. what God says in, to his people in verses 17 and 18. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. We have the benefit of hindsight because we know what comes next for the people of Israel. We know what they did. We know they weren't grateful for the blessings of the promised land. They soon sought to be like the nations around about them. They, they chose to substitute God's rule for that of a king like other nations. They forgot God and worshipped other gods, as the warning says in uh, Deuteronomy 8.19. And ultimately they perished, again a warning in Deuteronomy 8.20, because they were conquered and sent into exile. But Jesus shows us in the new covenant that this doesn't have to be the way it is. His death and his resurrection has made it possible for all who believe in his name to enter the true promised land, the eternal place of God's rule over God's people. The barrier of sin has been removed, for Jesus satisfied the wrath of God as our substitute. Eternal life has been won, for Jesus conquered death itself by his resurrection. Jesus has gone before us with a promise to prepare a place for us, so that we might be with him forever. We can live eternally with God, not because we've done anything that even vaguely merits his favour, but because Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. We know that nothing we have, riches or talents or status or opportunity, is ours because we deserve it. Such things are blessings from God. In fact, they are God's. As God owns them, that's God in the apostrophe S. Our task is to be thankful and to use all that he has given us for his glory in ways that show that we love God and that we love 
our neighbour. We are really merely stewards of all that God has given us. Sure, our past informs our present and our future. We are who we were. And it's true that we cannot change our past. We can't change our parents or the parents we had. We can't change the opportunities that are in our past. We can't change the, the choices we made then. We can't change the terrible and the painful experiences that we have endured or perhaps we've even perpetrated. But look again at the experience of those who spent 40 years wandering in the desert in preparation to enter the promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey. The experience was one of hardship. And nothing was going to change that. That was just real. That's what they really went through. But God redeemed at that time for his purpose and for their good. He turned those tough times into a period of training. A time when they got to see firsthand that God keeps promises. That God provides. That the word of God is what gives life and that, I guess, ahead of all things, that they were being shaped to be a people who were distinctively, as I said before, his people, different from other people around about them. They were being shown daily that God cares for them as a father cares for his children. These people got to see in, in unmistakable ways that their God was a source of all they had and that that God could be completely and always relied upon. That independent self-sufficiency was both forbidden and a lie. They were given opportunity to align their hearts with God's heart. The wilderness, as difficult as it was, gave them all that. It was for their good. I quite like what C.S. Lewis had to say again, I'm a bit of a fan of C.S. Lewis, in mere Christianity in relation to this kind of thing, and he says this. People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think that is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. This is what's, faced, this is what we've, what's uh, happened to us in our past as we've made our choices and will continue to occur. See, so like the, uh, the people of Israel, we too are in a covenant relationship with God. It's a new covenant, a covenant in Jesus' blood. We've experienced the difference the gospel makes in our lives for those of us who are believers. When we reflect on our past experiences, it remains true that who we are is, oh, sorry, who we are is who we were, but because we are Christians, that notion comes with a really important caveat. For when Jesus redeemed us, he redeemed every aspect of our lives, including our past, its joys and its sorrows, its pleasures and its pains. Jesus has given us a new perspective, a new outlook, a new heart. And our past experiences can be seen of the light, in the light of this new reality. We are, after all, new creatures. 
Just as God turned the judgment that was the wilderness into a testing and training experience for the new generation of Israelites to prepare them for entering into the promised land, so can the power of the gospel and the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit turn our past experiences into something that God can use in our sanctification to aid us in becoming the people he wants us to be for his glory and for our good. Verses 14 to 16 we read, The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents, its scorpions, thirsty ground, where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna uh, that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you. Why? To do you good in the end. To do you good in the end. We've all had our individual experiences. We all have our individual pasts. And those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can, uh, are the only ones who can know how this is true for us. It's our own personal experience. We can, uh, we're the only ones who can know how God has redeemed our past, the experiences that we have been through, whether they were good or bad. It's only we individually who know that because of the relationship with we, that we have with God. It says God works in us personally and individually. What a great God we have. As we uh, prepare for communion, I'm going to ask you to uh, give your attention to a film clip. It's a film clip that uh, is it's really kind of a bit of a promo uh, for a, uh, a documentary called The Dropbox. And it's not about the computer program, by the way. It tells, the film itself tells something, as the documentary, tells something of the experience of a Pastor Lee, a pastor in South Korea who set up a, a drop box or a baby box for unwanted babies in the front wall of his house. It also um, tells something of the experience of Brian Ivey, who was the filmmaker who made the documentary about Pastor Lee and the drop box, and who, because of the witness of Pastor Lee, became a Christian himself, a person who had no interest in Christ before this film and before making the film. It mentions in the way through a man, young man called Unman. Unman you'll recognise because he has a grossly oversized head. He's profoundly disabled. He is Pastor Lee's son. And Unman was Pastor Lee's motivation for establishing the Dropbox to rescue unwanted babies in, in South Korea. As you watch this, see how this person's past experience his past experiences have been redeemed by God's gospel, by the work of the Spirit, so that God's good purposes might be realised and how the, so that the power of the gospel might be demonstrated in the lives of others. For those who are about to uh, help with communion, I'd ask that you start to move forward when the film or this clip starts. For those not, please give your attention to that. Don't be distracted by what we're doing over there. It's a sad fact. Hundreds of unwanted babies are abandoned on the streets of Seoul, South Korea every year. Many of them do not survive. And this tragic loss of life moved a pastor to set up a way for saving unwanted babies. I first read an article about Pastor Lee in June of 2011. And it was all about this pastor in South Korea who had built a mailbox for abandoned babies. 
버려지는 것뿐만 아니라 버려지고 나서 발견을 해야 되는데 발견을 못해서 아이가 죽는 경우도 생겼어요. 이 아이들을 보호하지 않으면 자칫 우리 대문 앞에서 사체가 발견될 수밖에 없는 그런 상황이구나. 나는 이그 그 현장에 있으니까 이 아이들을 위해서 죽겠습니다. It was like this guy had built a bunker for babies and was defending it with his life and saying no one dies here. And I was compelled by that immediately. I flew to South Korea to make a movie about saving babies and I had no idea God was going to save me. So I became a Christian while making this film. And so Pastor Lee changed everything because he showed me what God's love was really like. The love of Pastor Lee and his wife really gripped my heart because there's too few people in this world that really show the love of God. 내 부모는 나를 버렸으나 여호와는 나를 영접하시냐 이 주님의 마음을 가지고 이 베이박스를 설치한 거예요. 쿵덕쿵덕쿵덕 그림 막 쫓아내가서 큰 문을 열고 이렇게 아이를 막 끌고 가슴이 참 답답해요. 하나님 또 생명 하나 구원해 줄 거예요. 살려주셔야 돼요. This is a matter of the heart. If that inherent value of the baby's life is not there. There is always going to be babies dumped in the trash. 이 세상에 태어나서 일평생 남의 도움이 없이 살아갈 수 없는 그 아이들 하나님이 쓰시고자 이 땅에 보내셨어요. 우리 아들 어머니가 병원 생활을 14년 동안 병원 생활을 하는 동안 어머니를 통해서 정말 귀한 생명의 존엄성을 알게 됐고 They really see Eunman as a blessing. And believe that God blessed Unman with his what we would call shortcomings, so that Pastor Lee would start this ministry and save hundreds of precious lives. So when people see this film, I hope they see something real. I hope they see the least hypocritical, least cynical, most genuine love. At the very core, I hope it grips the heart of every viewer to say, "We as human beings, created in the image of God." can do so much more for those around us. When people watch this film, they are going to come away with the understanding that every human life matters. His life has had the most profound impact on my understanding of the gospel. Here's this man that has literally sacrificed everything he's probably ever dreamed of for these children. That's the most beautiful picture of the gospel we've ever experienced. That is what we need in this world today. Examples like Pastor Lee. 그 아이들의 아버지가 되기로 결심한 것은 하나님께서 나를 양자 삼으셨잖아. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater example than the Dropbox. God has intervened in our lives to change us. He has redeemed our past so that it might inform our present and shape our future. As we share communion, we're going to remember how that could be. We're going to share together in remembrance of him, and we are to do so until he comes. You'll find in the, uh, in the trays some uh, bread in the small cups that's gluten-free. Will also be the standard bread passed out. Also, 
Could I ask that um, when you receive the bread, 